Hi, I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to the Brennan's Female Podcast. My guest this week is Afia Francisco, style expert and founder of The Style House. And we're talking about something important, how to address racism with your kids and everyone else in your life. We're also discussing ways to support Black entrepreneurs and Black brands in our communities now and for the future. Before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our sponsor. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women entrepreneurs achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Here is my conversation with Afia. So professionally, my uh, career started in books and magazines, um, uh, postgraduate program. And from there, I did an edit, uh, internship at Flair Magazine and found myself at Canadian House and Home, which I spent about five years in that publication. And it kind of gave me some good roots and understanding of the industry. So then I moved over to Lulu Magazine, which it was fantastic. I had had that background at House and Home because I was really kind of on my own. It, Lulu was based in Montreal and I was the only Toronto editor. So I really was left on my own and it was a fantastic opportunity because it gave me so much exposure and opportunities that I wouldn't have typically gotten at my level in the masthead, but I was able to navigate it because of my backstory with House and Home. Um, and one great thing that Lulu did for me as well is that they really uh, gave me an opportunity to do television work. I started to work with ET Canada and CityLine and Breakfast Television And that's when my career really kind of started to veer towards broadcast from print into broadcast. And, you know, it looks so linear now at the time. I was kind of like, what's happening? But uh, yeah, it went from being an editor to kind of being, I, I considered it almost like a digital editor, um, a broadcast editor, still telling those stories, but just in a different platform. And now here we are again, like, With a little bit of evolution, we see industries are always changing. So starting to tell that story a bit more on social media, um, but it all kind of goes back to those days of learning how to package a story, how to tell a story, my editorial background. Um, it's all rooted in that specifically style focus, but I've broadened it a little bit more to be lifestyle. I'm very interested in, you know, living well, and that comes from all different um parts of our, our lives. So yes, style, yes, fashion, but also what you eat, uh, meditation, wellness, all of that stuff all encapsulates a stylish life in my opinion. So I'm always looking to, you know, my end goal is always to how can we live our best lives from style through to life. Mm -hmm. And I love following your content. So thank you for everything that you share. Uh, and on a personal side, you're also a mom. So tell me, tell me a little bit about your family. Yeah. So you know what, Eva, I grew up with three sisters. So I come from a family of four girls and I did not know what I was having either time with the boys. My sons are Felix, who's 10 and Desi, who is eight. Mm -hmm. And I was terrified to have a boy just because I was like, I don't know anything <laughs> about boys. I don't know. And here I am with two of them. And you know, all the cliches are true. You love what you have. You get accustomed to it. I'm happy to be the solo female in the house, but it is a different life than what I grew up with like mm. the things that these boys will do you know you know trying to jump off staircases and banisters and you know I'll, I'm generalizing there's also the soft sensitivity of them as well but 
I definitely am learning every day and I know all parents are, but it does feel like something else as a mom who grew up with sisters to now have these boys. It's uh, a fun dynamic in our house. <laughs> yeah, a house full of boys, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, I love that. And we're actually speaking today and there, we're in the midst of a, what I'll call a global movement of protest uh, against racism, against racial injustice and oppression. Um, and I wanted to ask you, as a Canadian Black woman, how are you doing? What have you been feeling? What What are the recent events bringing up for you? And I know you've been sharing, uh, you know, a little bit of your experience and, and some content on your social platforms as well. So what does this all mean for you? Yeah, I appreciate the question. Thank you. You know, it brings up a lot of things. I'm sure like so many people day by day, even hour by hour, depending on what you've stumbled across mm -hmm. on social media or in your newsfeed, you know, the emotions can swing from, you know, a genuine sadness, um, just to see how people can treat each other in this world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking at that through that lens from the position of as a parent, and if my children were to be in these positions, you know, I can't help but make that connection. Yeah. So, you know, I feel it on a soul level when I see these black bodies being disposable, it's um, painful and it hurts. Um, and at the same time, I see moments of beauty and connection and change. And in all my years, there are conversations that are now being had that I never would have had before. Um, it wouldn't have occurred to me to have it. It wouldn't have been comfortable for me to have it. Mm -hmm. And it's just something I would have ignored. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and mm. um, many of my friends are white. And, you know, it's easy to kind of say, like, I've had my bubble. Um, but now these conversations and topics are coming up. And so it's almost been a bit of an unearthing for myself, too, to, like, kind of unpack all these microaggressions that I've suffered on the other end of and mm. not in a way of blaming or you know because we all do what we can with where we're at but just how much I internalized and digested without even being conscious of it mm. and now seeing that those are no longer acceptable ways of people being treated and that doesn't have to just be considered the norm for the next generation mm -hmm. I think so many of us just took it for granted that that's just the way it was you are a minority and so that comes along with certain um, discomforts and difficulties and I think now people are standing up and saying no that doesn't have to be that way mm -hmm. and to see both black and white and everybody in between that coming together and now saying obviously not everybody but a lot of people mm -hmm. um, yeah. recognizing that these little microaggressions aren't so micro, micro. and that they really, yeah. you know, they really can have an impact on how we see ourselves, how we see each other. And I'm thrilled that that conversation is now being had. So in all of the sadness and the fear and the frustration, there's also almost like a purging. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we're seeing so much activity and people speaking out is because it's been a lifetime of swallowing it and swallowing it and now you see like this actually has had impact on my psyche and the way I operate and navigate within this world and mm -hmm. it's time to now allow that to be expelled I don't know I no longer have to carry that or at least no longer carry it alone mm -hmm. people recognize it for what it is so there's a lot going on, mm. as you can see. It's, it's a lot of emotions. Well, that, that was a very accurate description. And, and before we got on the podcast, you and I were chatting about what the past few months have represented. So it's been kind of this 
massive and, and quite fast upgrade in our you know level of consciousness and the opportunities for change are just remarkable right now and and with with black lives matter it, this has just been this massive and very quick upgrade that everyone is is required to go through um so i love how you're speaking about your your experience um and you're also a mom and you know with your your boys who are eight and ten and I actually reached out to you a few days ago when I saw some of the content you were sharing about conversations that you're having with your children about, you know, being anti-racist and about racism and injustice. So I wanted to get your thoughts on how are you approaching this with them? What kind of conversations are you able to have? And I'm also curious to hear about their understanding of the current events. Yeah, you know, um, in addition to my children, I have nine nieces and nephews. Oh, wow. So this is like a huge, yeah, between my three sisters and my sister-in-law, like there are many children in my life. Mm -hmm. And so we span, the age group spans from almost one, so not quite a year old, up to almost 11. So we have different age groups, but they're all still quite young. So from my perspective, and my sisters have been similar, although we've all navigated slightly differently, but relatively the same that we have kind of preserved their innocence. Um, and what I mean by that is that they haven't seen any videos. We have talked mm. about, um, I have with my boys, um, who are eight and 10, as I mentioned, you know, we've spoken about George Floyd, but they don't know the specifics. They don't recognize, um, and I hope that they don't feel, and I don't think they do based on our conversations, the fear and the, um, oppression that's happening. It's more told on a, almost a removed context. And the reason why I find that important is because I don't want that fear to navigate their space as such young children. I don't mm. want them to see the world that way. And I think in some respects, people might think that I'm doing them a disservice because I'm not preparing them. But at the same time, I don't want their world to be molded by what they're expecting to see. I think perception has a lot. And I think, hope, I pray that when they get to a certain age and they're no longer in the bubble of mom and dad being with them all the time, Hopefully things will have changed a little bit. And if not, that will be the time we have the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, I've been advising my friends who are white or non-black. I think that's where the real work needs to be done is talking about white privilege to children who are white because mm -hmm. that's more of an empowering perspective where change can happen mm -hmm. as opposed to discussing it with my black boys where it feels like a disempowering, fearful perspective. Mm. So I'd rather see the change come from a place that it can be changed as opposed to a place where you are a victim and you need to be afraid. And that's the position I've taken on it. Mm -hmm. um, in our lives, generally speaking, um, we read books to them. Um, you know, they know all about Rosa Parks, but they also know the like joy and success stories. Mm. Um, and I think that that's super important. Um, while history cannot be ignored and it's super important to know the injustices, I want them to know that that's not solely their ancestry. You know, their ancestry includes royalty. It includes scientists mm -hmm. and innovators. And that's things that I want them to also um, embrace and recognize as not the only part or, you know, the the negative parts to be the only part of what they see. Mm, I love that. I love that. And I know, you know, all the moms I know want to make sure they're doing the right thing right now with their with their kids and 
uh, finding the time and, and the right way of speaking to them about what is happening. And again, with, with the concern of making sure uh, that they can, you know, get them to adopt an anti-racist position as, as early as possible. And, and, you know, maybe that wasn't the case with our generation, right? So if we can, uh, if we can have these conversations with the next generation early on, that's a, a step in the right direction. You, you've touched on a couple of points, and, and I really like your idea of, you know, speaking to white kids about white privilege and, and what this means. But for moms who are not sure where to start, what would be your advice to them? Um, so I would advise surrounding yourself with um, representation. So, mm. you know, I love the I Am series. It's a picture book for kids and they talk about all different types of people. But amongst those, they do have a book on um Martin Luther King, they have one on Rosa Parks, etc. And so I think that's a nice introduction just to see that in their collection. Also books like The Vanderbeekers, mm-hmm. which don't explicitly talk about race, it just is a happenstance. And so ensuring that that is a normalcy, if they're, you know, kids pay attention to what we do. And if we are saying, you know, all, um, everybody is equal, we don't see color, everyone's welcome, but they're lives don't reflect that. They right. don't see anybody who looks different from them. They don't interact with anybody who's different from them. That is going to have an impact even more than you saying, um, you know, everybody's equal. Right. So in our lives, what does that look like and how can we expand that circle? And that becomes, again, those stories of joy, not necessarily. And yes, it is important, like I said, to hear those stories, um, of slavery and oppression, but at the same time, knowing that there is a whole world out there mm-hmm. that is filled with everybody. So I think that's a big one are those book series. Also, I think it's important not to assume that our kids are just going to be nice people because they're kind. Right. I think um, the problem with systemic racism is that it affords luxuries and accommodations that we're not seeing. So to just assume that they get that we live in a world of systemic systemic racism Mm -hmm. is dangerous because then that conversation is never being had and they're not taught to look for how these injustices perpetuate themselves every single day. Mm. So I think it's talking about how it is that they are benefiting from a society and an institution that has allowed for this to perpetuate for so many years Mm -hmm. and what their role is in it. And just looking for that, you know, and looking again and looking again and looking every day because of course, if, you know, if it affords you certain privileges, it takes a lot of strength and courage and work, like real work, to actively look for that mm-hmm. and speak out against it. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's not a it's not a one time thing because it's this is not just one conversation you're having your with your kids. And, and you brought up a really good point of they will they learn from how you behave as a parent. So it's it's an effort that has to be repeated every day right because they'll be paying attention every minute and every hour basically and that's it and that's the difference between like what we've said is performative alliance Mm -hmm. and like true allyship you know it's um you know a lot of people have gone out of their comfort zone by even discussing what they consider a quote-unquote political matter, Mm -hmm. even though that can be argued, obviously. So they feel like they've done the hard work, but they are not recognizing that's just the very, very tip of the iceberg. It's going to be the continuing that conversation 
two weeks from now when it's no longer a trending topic, when your, you know, close friend or your colleague or whoever it is says something in passing and not letting it go. It's this continuing to check in on your black friends. And then again, Mm -hmm. looking at the privileges that exist every day, um, you know, that is the long haul and it's tiring. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy thing to sign up for. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of us just want to say, but I'm a nice person and that is enough. (laughs) Um, You know, I would never actively hurt anybody else. And that is my contribution. And I think we're recognizing that's no longer enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's. Yeah. And I think it's funny. I was going to say, because you brought it up in uh, from the point of view of children, thinking that, you know, it might be it might it, it might not be enough thinking they're anti-racist just because they're kind or that they might not hurt somebody else just because they're kind. And that that applies to us as adults as well. And I think that's been the kind of the rude awakening for for, well, especially many white people and and where we we think we're we're protected, uh, you know, of, of, of doing this or having racist behavior because we care about other human beings and we're nice people. Um, and certainly in Canada, that's also part of culture, right? Canadians are known as being so nice and respectful, but often that also means we're afraid of having those real conversations and, and looking the, the, the truth in the face, basically. Exactly. I mean, it's like death by politeness, right? Like we're all just suffocating <laughs> under not saying anything. And, yeah. you know, that has caught up to us now. We see the dangers in it. Absolutely. Um, and I'm curious because your boys are, are a bit older, um, eight and ten. Are, are they have they brought up anything? Like, is this something? Um, and it, this is different too because you know we're all isolated. Uh, this movement started. We were still in COVID lockdown, so uh, kids are maybe not being um, you know spending time with other kids, or they're not in in at school as they normally would be. But I'm just curious, what kind of conversations are your kids having? What are they telling you about it? Yeah, you know what, that's a great point. Because as I had um, brought up before, my um, initial reaction was to just kind of shield them from it. I didn't really want it to be within their world, um, which, you know, I get you can be criticized for that, that that's an option. And I, and I own that. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the kids still are interacting with each other because they speak over video games and, you know, the world's opening up a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, um, I had been kind of gently asking them if they've been hearing about the news and if they had any questions, just trying to do a little bit of a check-in. And my older son, Felix did ask me, who's George Floyd? I said, Oh, (laughs) like, how did you hear about him? And he said, Oh, my friend brought him up, um, in a video game, but I couldn't understand what he was talking. Like, I didn't understand like what he was saying. So I didn't know if he genuinely couldn't hear him or if he didn't understand the con anyhow. So we had a conversation and, you know, giving the, um, facts of the situation without the entire con, like, so that a black man had been killed at the hands of a police officer had been murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are now really upset about it because they think it's unfair and, kind of and took it from that approach that this is a long held problem to be honest I did kind of um paint the scene of you know this is a really big problem in the states again just trying to but as you know we still have we do have that here in Canada as well but this happened in the this states then my, in the states, yeah. this specific one and um because you know my younger son was like why do like so I get and I understand how it's difficult to have these 
conversations with children, mm-hmm. but I find it's like doubly so when those children see themselves specifically as the victims, as opposed to mm. why I put a little bit of the onus on my white friends and peers to have this conversation with their white children because they won't see themselves in that victim position. They won't have that same fear that my kids might have hearing those stories. They can hear it from a position of that's why we need to do better as opposed to, and now you need to be afraid of people who are meant to be protecting you. Um, And so I'm trying to navigate that language and do a little bit of dancing Mm -hmm. around it so that, you know, their heads are not in the sand, but it's not in a way that's uh, fear fearful to them. Right. Yeah. No, and I think that's a that's a smart approach. Um, you brought up a a few books that you you like to read with your kids or, or, or your kids' age or younger kids. Um, would there be books that you suggest as well for grown-ups, maybe in you know helping prepare parents having those conversations with, with their kids or just for our, our education overall? Are there titles that you're you're especially drawn to? Yeah, you know what? I haven't read these myself, but they are in my um, my cart to purchase because yep. I'm learning too <laughs> and I'm figuring out all this stuff too. So there were two. Um, How to Be an Anti-Racist yes. by Abraham Kendi mm-hmm. apparently is supposed to be excellent. And I heard both of these people that I'm going to suggest speak. So um If you're looking for podcasts too, um, he did an interview with Brene Brown on her podcast Mm. and that really drew me to the book. And he has a children's board book coming up, which I haven't seen, but under the same um, title, How to Be an Anti-Racist. So I think that's pretty interesting. And then there's Austin Channing Brown and hers is I'm Still Here. Um, And again, that's, it just sounds like a fantastic book. So I am going to be reading them alongside my recommendation, um, but to hear these two people speak um, is a really great start as well. Their interviews were amazing. This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners that can provide education, financing, mentoring, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. I also want to talk about the fact that there's been, um, you know, a lot of the conversation is about people with a platform needing to use that platform to spread messages of, of anti-racism, you know, with their audience and, and uh, messages around Black Lives Matter. Um, how do you feel about that? And I think Um, what would be your suggestions for individuals who do have that platform? And I'll add a second question in there because you work in, you know, in the style sphere um, in Canada. Is there anything that we specifically can do when it comes to fashion, to the, the, the lifestyle industry overall to be showing support at this point? Yeah. So with respect to your using your platform, we all have a voice, whether we have five people following us mm-hmm. or 50,000, um, that is our platform and the people are there, you know, it can be assumed because they are interested in what you have to say. Mm-hmm. And we, and we recognize that silence is saying something in it of itself. So right there, 
it shows that you need to show up to do the hard work. Like that's going to manifest itself in different ways in your life. You might be fine to have that argument with your sister, but can't imagine putting it out there in public because brands might see it or who's going to receive that. But then I would ask you to maybe question why, why are like, what is it that you were afraid of? Like how can anybody mm. err on the side of humanity and fault you for that? And if so, who is it that you are tar- like who is your audience who are you speaking to mm-hmm. and why is it that you feel that they would be in any way offended by that and what a luxury that is to have that option um so what does it look like um i think that it's i've enjoyed that um people have been really generous with sharing their spaces giving um their lending their platform to black um influencers and stylists and Mm -hmm. the whole gamut um just sharing that space i think that was a great initiative and i'd love to see it continue and it's gone you know crazy and i think that's been really nice um just to see like these black voices amplified and seeing that their accounts are getting some recognition from this Mm -hmm. um it's also a great idea to support black owned businesses right now so you know um pointing people and highlighting brands who are doing some great things within the black community. Mm-hmm. Love and nudes is a new one for me. Uh, love and nudes. It's a undergarment company and Ooh. something as simple as just like a nude bra, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that didn't exist my entire life. So to now see these shapes and they're yeah. beautiful for everybody, you know, it just wouldn't be nude on everybody, but yeah. they're beautiful, rich tones. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I, highlighting it, it, these I'm laughing because it made me think of band-aids, right? We just saw, exactly. and again, that's like, an, it's something that should be obvious because when you're a white person, yeah, the band-aids you buy are always going to match your skin tone. And that's right. I laughed because I never thought about the nude bra, same thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's these little things that are taken for granted yeah. um, that have it's just been accepted. Like, that's just the way it is. Band-Aids aren't for us um, and bras aren't and hair care is in a different section of the um, drugstore, even right. beauty store. Like, mm-hmm. And it's those little things like that. Like, why is that? So. Um, so with respect to using the platform, I think those are very relatively easy ways. So if you just want to tip your toe into it, you know, like we're all growing and learning. So that is a relatively painless way to do so. And I do think it's important to do so Mm -hmm. um, because I think that you're at least showing allyship and an intent to learn and do better. And if you don't have the words, I think that it is completely fair to say, I don't have the words, but I'm here Mm -hmm. and I want to learn to do better Mm -hmm. and leave it at that. Um, So yes, I do think our platforms are important and it's not always going to be perfect and we're not always going to get it right on the first try and you might put yourself out there for some criticism, but I think we all kind of need to put on our adult pants, our big boy, big girl pants and suck it up and just be okay with not being okay and having people potentially be critical. Mm And that that's a perfect segue because we talked about the the conversations we want to be having with our children, but um, it's the conversations we're having as adults as well. And I know for a lot of people, this has been uncomfortable. This has been tough. Um, we we all have different levels of you know education or knowledge uh, about the issues at hand, and this can make for some tough convos with friends or family. And I know. Um, 
there's, you know, there's a lot of memes going around with people who, you know, are blocking accounts or unfollowing accounts because we don't, uh, we can't agree with that person's view um, or we can't agree with somebody's silence. And and I know for some people too, it's the conversations we're having with people super close to us and that's never easy. So in terms of having those discussions as adults, we spoke about the discussions we're having with children, but how are you approaching that? And what would be your advice for, you know, anyone who finds themselves at odds with, with the views of someone close to them? Yeah, you know, um, it's the first time for me too having conversations like this with a wide group of friends and colleagues. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's uncomfortable sometimes as well. Like, you know, I'm not necessarily somebody who's ever considered myself to be um, an activist of any kind or, you know, I obviously believe in humanity and I want to put myself out there, but to now have these conversations, it's not my natural position. Let's put it that way. Right. I generally am one to say, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion and, you know, and just let it be. And I'm just going to let this go. And I realized that that has long been my go-to under like maybe the guise of like being a peaceful person or just being like cool or chill. And I realized that that's all stemmed in fear. And so in order to have these conversations, I have to like put myself out there and be okay with being a little bit afraid and a little bit uncomfortable yeah. and recognizing that discomfort and why it is for so long, I was so ready to ignore it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's all I can really say mm -hmm. is that when you have those feelings of discomfort to lean up against them and recognize that there is another side to that. And when you push through it, you know, it becomes easier with every time you have a conversation with somebody, anytime you question somebody's position, that makes it a little bit easier. It's like any muscle, it's like any exercise, the more you do it, yeah. the easier it becomes, right? Yeah. And I think we just need to like allow ourselves that discomfort, knowing that discomfort is a sign and typically a byproduct of courage and strength and putting yourself out when you're growing. Yeah. If we want to remain stand stagnant, we can just keep doing what we've been doing, but we know there's no gro growth there. We know that that's just a life of stagnation is no real life. Mm -hmm. I think most of us would argue we're here to like do our best and become our best versions. And that can only happen by challenging ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this is one way that that's going to happen. So absolutely change and growth comes from discomfort, right? If we were comfortable in the first place, nothing would be changing. So it's the same exactly when we're it. having those discussions or being confronted, you know, to speaking up, whether it's in person or on social or, you know, with with brands that we that we uh, we don't agree with with views on anymore. Um, I think that's a that's a valid point. Um, and then um, uh, wanted to ask you and I I had a, a few guests on a, on a podcast recently and I, I asked the same question and one of them was the daughter of Archbishop Desmond Tutu who had, oh yes Mungi yeah and her mom actually so um and her mom was saying Mungi's mom was talking about how you know she's she's gone through a similar movement with apartheid in, in South Africa and I asked her what was her hope what is the best possible outcome that we would see from you know current events so i want to ask you the same question what would you like this to lead to in terms of change and and hopefully lasting change 
You know, I'm hoping that this becomes a movement that our kids will look back on as like a piece of history and time where the world changed mm. that, um, you know, things no longer, you know, we've been talking and hearing so much about getting back to normal. Once, uh, self-isolation's over, we want to go back to normal. But I think we recognize that normal was so broken. And once we emerge from this, perhaps there's a better way of being that people are able to now sign up to do, have these hard conversations are willing to be allies, even if it like puts them slightly in an uncomfortable spot. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, willing to share, um, the piece of the pie that they've been given with others. And so that they'll look back at this time and say, wow, that's when the world changed and can't believe that, um, you know, there was ever a time that somebody was potentially at a disadvantage just because of the color of their skin. Cause they happen to have a little bit more melanin than somebody else or mm. that somebody was given an advantage because of the color of their skin. And that I hope that that seems like such an archaic, thing that they almost don't believe that it happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. Um, and then I want to ask you about, well, two questions that are kind of more of our, our, our usual lineup of questions for, for guests on The Brain is Female. And I, I always love hearing women's answers. So the first one is, what is your definition of success? And if I had asked you that same question five or 10 years ago, would the answer have been different? Yeah. So now my definition of success is getting to spend the majority of my time the way I want to, mm -hmm. signing up for things that bring me joy. I think that time is the new luxury and the commodity that is valuable um, and what I seek for myself. Mm -hmm. um, so that is success to me is having that and being able to shape my, a life that is reflective of my values and what brings me joy five years ago? Nope. I would not have said the same thing. You know, I had very, um, you know, much more, um, you know, for lack of a better word, superficial definitions of success. Right. I think like most, you know, that was how much I was earning and, you know, how big my, my, uh, platform is and what yeah. shows I was on and those things, you know, I, I'm not, uh, going to say that, I'm so above it now, but I kind of have recognized and given them a little bit of the priority position that they deserve, which isn't first place necessarily. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's, I'm, I'm defining success a little bit differently these days. And I'm curious, did, um, did COVID change anything for you? Has it helped reinforce, you know, this new disbelief in, in a new measure of success or has it open to your eyes to other priorities, you know, for, for your life and how you choose to spend it. Uh, absolutely. You know, I think it's so difficult to even get any semblance of what is truly important to you when you're on this hamster wheel and nonstop, you're just getting to the next thing, the next thing that when you don't really have room for silence, it's difficult to even ask yourself, am I enjoying this? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, pre COVID, I was very much enjoying my job. Like I love it and I still do, but the, um, the time away from home and the consistent traveling and all that stuff, I am reevaluating that, you know, it's also, I recognize said within the context of having been close to home. So it's tough to imagine myself 
consistently traveling and getting on a plane all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that may change again, but at this moment it feels as though my place is more here, closer to home, like, um, with the kids, how quickly the time goes. Um, and things that you always say and you know, but I truly kind of feel it right now. So I I have definitely had a bit of a shift, a perspective change since Mm -hmm. self-isolation. Hmm. And my favorite question to ask all the guests on the show is, what do you wish women would do more of? Hmm. I'd say give themselves the gift of silence. Like just Ooh, I like that. allow that, yeah, allow some space. You know, I think often if we're doing something for ourselves, we have that little voice that, oh, but we should be and this is kind of selfish or the kids or blah, blah, blah. And if you can just get a little bit quiet and listen to, you know, what it is you're really feeling, I think that's a true gift that if it's possible, we can all make 10, 15 minutes in our day for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good one. Yeah, that's a, a great place to start. And I want to say thank you so much, Afia, and your guidance on, you know, conversations that we can have with children uh, around the, the question of race and, and injustice is that's going to be helpful to many. So thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for sharing your platform with me today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to Afia for all her insights and advice. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, if you did, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you to TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs, for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening.